Welcome back to Pod is a Woman. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And this is our Breast Cancer Awareness Month episode. We're really excited to be joined today by Dr. Susan Domchek, who is a leading breast cancer doctor and executive director of the Basser Center for BRCA at Penn Medicine. This is an issue that's really close to so many of us and that I often advocate about as a breast cancer survivor myself. But first, ladies, I can't believe it's only been a week since our last episode because <laughs> so much has happened. The debate, obviously, Trump and so many members of his inner circle have tested positive for COVID. Trump checking into Walter Reed, the joyride. I mean, where do we even start? I feel like every time we start, we say, I cannot believe how much has happened this week because so much right. happens in this election cycle in a weekly period that you, you just wake up every day like, what now? Well, and it is. It's like every day, you know, if as if you're not, you know, dealing with enough during the pandemic, we're learning that President Trump, Melania Trump, Hope Hicks, Kaylee McEnany, Kellyanne Conway, campaign manager Bill Stepien, Senate Judiciary Committee members, Tom Tillis, Mike Lee, Ron Johnson, all senators. I think it's easier like, to say who uh, did not get COVID <laughs> at this point. Who didn't get it? Truly. Now we have the Joint Chiefs of Staff in quarantine because they have one positive test among them. It's just it as if it could get worse. And we talk about the mayor of D.C. putting out a statement saying that this one event, the nomination of ACB, might actually be the super spreader event in D.C. for this year. And I just think about it and I think, you know, the White House has a responsibility to protect the citizens of this country. And look what this has turned into. I mean, for context, there are now more recorded COVID cases in the White House than in New Zealand, Taiwan and Vietnam combined. And that's 124 million people. I mean, the White House has become a huge COVID hotspot. And I mean, it completely feels so destabilizing. It really does. We already knew the Republicans were rushing this nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. But, you know, now that they have had an event that was not socially distanced, that did not have masks on, and then now had so many people test positive and they continue to rush it. It's just, you know, to me, it's like, could we make sure that Americans have what they need before you rush a Supreme Court justice? And this is the biggest frustration I have with it is that, you know, now that we're all watching President Trump at Walter Reed get the very best health care available. And Darian, I would love for you to talk about Walter Reed because you know Walter Reed better than any of us. It, it is just like we're taking the focus off of all of these Americans who do not have access to Walter Reed and all of these facilities. But can you tell us at Walter Reed, because you know that facility where he was right. sent to, I mean, what does he have access to there? He, I, he has access. I mean, this is world-class healthcare. But for me, I think when I look at the situation, and I've been to Walter Reed more times than I can count, and President Obama, during his administration, he would go visit a military hospital once a quarter, and we did it unannounced and without a lot of fanfare because he wanted to make sure that he was spending time with those injured service members and families and with the staff that was there. And my heart really goes out to those families who are now watching this become a circus outside of Walter Reed and the distraction that it is to people who are there who were genuinely hurting and recovering and trying to, you know, 
figure out what life looks like with the sorts of injuries that people who fight wars deal with. And the staff there has always just been top-notch, top-of-the-line, incredibly professional. And my heart goes out to them, to them, to their families. I think about the resident staff, and especially with Mr. Wilson, who died at 91, who had served so many administrations so honorably. So many of the resident staff right now have been at the White House through multiple administrations and multiple mm-hmm. presidents. People don't realize that. They don't realize that these this staff stays for decades. They're loyal to every president. And they're generally older and people of color. Mm-hmm. And I just remember before we left, the head executive who was responsible for the house, we were at a Christmas party and I just looked at him and I had tears in my eyes and I said, I'm sorry that this is what you're being left with. And he said, we've been through so many administrations and so many presidents. We are tough. We are resilient. We will get through this. And that's not the case. You could have never predicted this. No, how could they have imagined? It's like if there was a list of do's and don'ts, the White House is doing every single don't when it comes to this. And and I also want to paint a picture, you know, the residents is one piece of it. And then there's the West Wing. People don't realize how tight and cramped so these tiny. quarters are. I mean, you, you look at the West Wing TV shows and all of that, which I actually have never seen, even though I was told that my job was, I was Donna, apparently, from the West Wing. <laughs> I, don't Donna. Know what that, I don't know what that means. But when you're there, and, and we sat there, Darian, like that's where our offices were those first couple years, you you literally like there's hardly any room from like one room one office to the next everything is super tight and everyone who has access to that area is very very close to the president his closest advisors their secret service that stands at every hall in the west wing and if you don't have a reason to be in that hall you're not allowed to walk down it right so right. you're talking about a covid hotspot where it's literally focused on only the most important staff the transmission is only the closest circle, and there's kind of no way to get around it. You don't open windows in the West Wing. No, there are no windows to be no. opened. There was like you can be in the quote best real estate in the West Wing and be in a converted closet with no windows because again, it's the location. It's not the 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 square footage. Well, that's what I remember taking my brother who does HVAC on a tour and he was like looking at all the thermostats because it is, it's like, oh, that's just an ordinary thermostat in the West Wing. But, you know, when President Trump has come out of the White House, has come out of Walter Reed and taken his mask off or gone on this joyride, you know, he's showing us just what he's doing in public, right? Right. That was my question is like, how uh, removed is he in the Walter Reed presidential suite? And, you know, what is he actually doing in private at the residence now? Because all of the people who serve there have no option of working remotely. They have to be there with him knowing he has COVID and taking off his mask. And still continuing to serve. And that speaks to the professionalism, but the danger that they are in. You think about Mm -hmm. that joyride where he had two Secret Service officers in two Secret Service agents, excuse me, in such close quarters that, you know, is bulletproof. It's meant to be able to handle a chemical attack. And you think that he's protecting them. And I'm just, I'm really surprised. And maybe this is 
the negative Nancy in me, I don't know a better term for it, but that he continues to put his Secret Service agents at risk and his details at risk without any consideration as to the protections that they provide him. There's so much outrage about that right now because of the lack of consideration of the Secret Service agents, the the pilots of Marine One, the helicopter that's transporting him back and forth. Obviously, it's a huge motorcade. But also, you know, Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany tested positive as well. And all weekend, she wasn't quarantining. She was briefing White House reporters without a mask. There's been two folks already that from the White House press corps that have come up positive as well. And so how irresponsible every single high-level official in this administration has been and the way that they interact also with their support staff. It's so selfish, right? Like, you know, more than parties, he could do the job in his remote location without going on a joyride to wave to supporters. Like, they're there because they support you. They're not going to be upset if you don't go by them. And on your reporter, you know, point, Alejandra, it, and the Secret Service, it's all the family members. So Michael Shear, who's the New York Times correspondent who we know, who tested positive, has now said that his wife tested positive. And so, you know, while President Trump is very lucky to have received medications and therapies that are not available to the general public, the general public does not have those options. And I wish that this was like the flu, right? I wish that we were in a situation where the majority of people recovered, but we've already seen that that's not the case. And so, you know, now that he's responsible for 38% of the world's disinformation and <laughs> continuing having had it to spew disinformation, it's like, this is not going to change without a change in the administration. That's right. This is not the flu. This is not the flu. And for him to put out that information, to come back and stand on the Truman balcony and rip off that mask in sort of an act of defiance, or maybe to show that he is stronger than coronavirus. I don't know what the point of him having done that was. It just continues to perpetuate this idea that, you know, it's not as serious as what the experts are saying. And listen to the experts. It's not hard. Well, it was so dramatic, you know, that when he how he took that off. And I mean, I mean, it was like political theater at its most obvious. But I mean, what is the message that he's trying to get across? That I mean, he's obviously struggling. There's this video, I don't know if you guys have seen, it's been going around and they kind of zoomed in on him when he was standing there all lit up on this on this balcony. And he looks like he's struggling to breathe. He does. He's actually kind of like, and he, always, he looks also like he's trying to suppress a cough. And so they, they need to be really careful because what they're doing right now, it seems like it's actually backfiring. It's highlighting the fact that he is not being honest about how he's doing. And if he had just stayed in the hospital and really got recovered and then come out when he's ready to walk up a flight of stairs without panting, it might be better for optics. No, I think he thinks that he is giving so much to the American people by modeling, like, you know, the the people who are saying, he's fighting it so we don't have to. I'm like, no, he's actually fighting it because he's given it to almost everyone who's supposed to be fighting for us. And now it's a national security risk. But I don't know if you guys saw the other story that has gotten very little coverage 
because this has been at the forefront, but Melania evidently has a war on Christmas. Melania hates Christmas, apparently. <laughs> Are we surprised? No, Are we no. that surprised? No, but <laughs> when I, I was telling the girls this and we were watching the news and Dylan was just like, who doesn't like Christmas lights? <laughs> and I just... I can't imagine when we were at the White House, that was my favorite time of year to see the White House lit up to have all of those volunteers from across the country come in and do the Christmas decorations and see which tree was going to be in what room. And there was always, you know, a gold star tree or a military tree. And was I, so it was so magical. And I always thought this is the most wonderful time of the year. And I look forward to the eggnog and the holiday parties and bringing people in to show them how amazing this house is people's house was and for her to say things like I'm working my ass off on this Christmas stuff like you know I don't have to do it yes you do have to do it this is the role that you came into you know yeah. what I'm not so shocked by this because you saw what she did to the White House that Christmas where the whole <laughs> thing looked terrible. like it was bleeding I mean I just remember looking at the way she decorated that year where it was like blood red trees up and down it, I mean it really looked like something from like a nightmare before Christmas she has it taken to this role very obviously and it just it's I think it's reflective in the way she has also decorated yeah I'd like to see some evolution on the role of a first spouse and you know Hillary Clinton certainly tried to bring substance into her role so you know I can almost see it saying you know like well I have so many things but the quote it's like you know who gives a about Christmas decorations, you know, the truth is, it's just their sentiment time and time again. Like when Donald Trump says, my whole family moved here for you all to take care of your problems. And it's like, you know, they think they're giving us something, whereas we all remember those roles and we remember what an honor we thought it was to serve the American people and to get to be part of that celebration. And I don't care someone's politics. I want us to get back to that where it is an honor where you get to present Christmas to America. And it's also the time when the president and the first lady also invite in so many people that they've worked with throughout the year to thank them and to engage with them. You know, people don't realize how many White House Christmas parties there are. We would have Christmas parties for the better part of a month where you would have community leaders mm -hmm. and media and, you know, members of Congress and just like all these different folks would come in and the president, the first lady would stand there for hours and take pictures and shake hands. I mean, that's something that you do again during that time of year to show your appreciation for everyone. And so to have that attitude about it is just the opposite of the spirit. It really is. And, you know, I think back to 2018 when Melania had that jacket that says, I don't care. And, you know, that kind of separated the sides of the aisle where Democrats were like, I can't believe that she would wear this. And Republicans are like, it's just fashion. But now when you look at that and combine it with her statements on the children who are in cages on top of. She admitted um, it. She, like, admitted she it. just admitted it. She did it on purpose. Well, and it's like she's getting her disinformation from her husband because also like saying that Obama did it is not true. There have been multiple fact checks that the Obama administration did not have a family separation policy. It was a new policy instituted by the Trump administration. I mean, we need to get to a place where we are talking about conscious immigration reform and what our borders look like. But when we are having these debates about whether we, you know, are just working our 
uh, for the American people. We're not having the debates that the American people need us to have. Speaking of debates, everyone is very excited about the vice presidential debate to see Kamala Harris and Mike Pence toe-to-toe. It's going to be interesting, that's for sure. I mean, I know that the vice president has declined to have plexiglass around him, and I just think that out of an abundance of caution, wouldn't you want to do that? Or wouldn't you want to move it virtually? Well, it's like, you know, when science tells you that if you wear a condom, you don't have a child. It's like, again, but seriously, I don't know. I put those two things in the same sentence. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure that mother would allow for it. Let's (laughs) be real. Like this plexiglass, the barrier is like. Yeah, let's move on from Mike Pence and condoms. And yeah. No, but to your point. I think we should follow the science here. Just this past week, Jamie Harrison actually set the example. He's running against Senator Lindsey Graham and he brought his own plexiglass divider to the debate because Graham refused to quarantine. He was obviously in the crowd last Tuesday. He said it was to protect his family, and I totally get that. And there's there's a whole video of it online. And yeah, it looks kind of funny, but guess who's not going to get COVID? Jamie Harrison. Harrison. Exactly. exactly. I mean, we pray and hope that, that all of these things work, right? I remember in March when I took my... I took a flight out to LA and I was one of two people on the plane with a mask and I was wiping down my seat and people looked at me like I was crazy, but that's how you prevent those sorts of diseases and this sort of spread. And Jamie Harrison did the right thing. And if they Mm -hmm. don't have plexiglass around them, shame on them and shame on anyone in that venue that's not wearing a mask. And he had good substance. And I think that's the other thing that'll be interesting in this debate. You know, the thing about Mike Pence and his Indiana, you know, charm, he's going to try to smile. He's not going to be the interrupting, you know, jerk of uh, the president. But I do think they're going to go after Kamala because Kamala has substance and she is going to present her substance in a very clear way. And I think they're going to, you know, go after her for being nasty and all of these terrible things that we've seen before. And so I I am already going, you know, that's that's going to be their line. I just hope that the American people understand that, you know, Mike Pence is yet another reason that we're in this situation because he's not standing up to the bully that is Donald Trump. And honestly, what they need to show in this debate is that Pence can be president if he needs to be. And before it was a, a matter of can he be president in the next few years? And now you're thinking, well, can he be president potentially in the next few weeks if he needs to be? And so he really needs to come and, and show a, a level of control over himself and the situation to bring momentum back to the campaign. He was going to lose in Indiana, right? He wasn't even popular in Indiana before he got on the ticket. Well, I know that we all talked about last week how, you know, what a disaster that debate was. And while I think that this will be a little more pleasant and have a little more decorum, I'm really looking forward to a nasty woman eviscerating that man. Speaking of an incredible woman, we have our interview coming up right now with Dr. Susan Domchek. I know this is a pivot right now to breast cancer, but our health is equally as important to pay attention to right now. So let's get right to it. We are here with Dr. Susan Domchek, who is the executive director of the Basser Center for BRCA at Penn Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today, Susan. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. 
one in eight American women are diagnosed with breast cancer over their lives. So it's honestly hard to find a woman who hasn't either had a personal experience themselves or one with one of their friends and families. I know all of us here on the podcast do. So we're in Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and there's pink ribbons everywhere and lots of messaging. But beyond the pink, what is it that women should hear this month? Well, right, especially right now in the middle of COVID-19, we're seeing many women delay their screening tests and put off their mammograms or put off uh, healthy health behaviors. And we're worried about that. We've seen a significant drop in the number of mammograms, particularly in the spring and summer. And we're worried that women will be diagnosed with cancer later than they need to be. Healthcare facilities have taken this very seriously. And I think it's safe to go get your mammogram. And I encourage women to do that. Well, Susan, as we are talking about mammograms, for years, women have been told to start having them at age 40. Is that guidance still correct? Or what would make you encourage a patient to seek one earlier? We think it's important in medicine sometimes to thoroughly confuse everyone with our conflicting (laughs) recommendations. As as you're alluding to, it depends on the organization, what what the starting age is for the recommendations of screening mammography. And I think that's challenging because it's very confusing for patients. I think every woman should at the minimum uh, talk to their physician at age 40 about what it might mean for them. There are women who need mammograms earlier than 40. And those are women who have a strong family history of breast or ovarian cancer, or who know that they have a genetic susceptibility that increases their risk for cancer. But all women at 40 should take their personal risk factors into account because although genetics is important and we'll discuss that, there are other things that are important as well. There are reproductive factors. um, There are individual decisions that women make uh, that can uh, increase or decrease the risk of developing breast cancer. So, and it's, it's also a matter of personal preference. One of the main reasons the recommendations went to later was because of the issue of false positive tests but there are many women who would trade off a false positive for earlier detections. So that's why these are personal decisions. That's right, I certainly would. It's really helpful. I I shared on the podcast last week that my mom was just um, recently diagnosed with breast cancer. And um, so this is very personal for me and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. But it, it is, it's such a hard thing to go through and now she's going through it during COVID times. And I know so many of our listeners are in that position. It's really hard to know when you're supposed to advocate for yourself and how to advocate for yourself. Do you have any advice for women when they're diagnosed on what the first thing they should do and how they should advocate for themselves? It's such a great question. And I think that there are resources available to give women a sense of the process. Uh, One of the the most frequent questions that I I get from family members or friends is, I have an abnormal mammogram, what do I do now? There's just not even that clear path of, you need a biopsy, we need to see what that shows, that'll determine whether or not you go to surgery first or potentially get treatment first medically. And so many institutions have nurse navigators, and it's always worth asking whether such a uh, a position exists because those are people who know the process and can answer a lot of questions as you're going through um, because it is confusing. You end up having a radiologist, a pathologist, 
a medical oncologist, a surgeon, a radiation oncologist, depending on the surgery, a plastic surgeon. When you think about all those doctors and the coordination, uh, it's tough. Now, most centers are coordinator once you get in, but if you don't even have a sense of the process, if you have no sense of what's coming, it can be very confusing. So I think finding out whether there or not there's a nurse navigator or who the point person is going to be as you start your journey is really important uh, to try to make things less confusing. That's so helpful. She was also very early warned against going online. And so, you know, that's even more frustrating, right? So is there any online resource that you would recommend that women can go to? Yeah, I do think that that there are, are many, the National Cancer Institute, uh, Komen, um, many of the large centers uh, like ours, we have information at Bassar.org. The Mayo Clinic has information. So it's important to go not to chat rooms um, because one <laughs> thing that uh, women don't necessarily understand starting out, and why would they, is that there are multiple kinds of breast cancer. There's not one breast cancer. It depends on, there's, there's kind of multiple flavors. And depending on whether the estrogen receptor is positive or something called HER2 new is positive, that completely changes how your cancer is going to be treated. So we often hear, well, why aren't I getting this medication? And it's because you don't have that kind of cancer. So if, if you're kind of getting advice from people not in the medical field early on, it, it can be very challenging. But many of the resources that I recommended, and there's another breastcancer.org, have a lot of good information and include things like what questions to ask your doctor, um, what questions to ask about your pathology report. And those things can be really helpful as you go into those first few visits. And one of the questions that now more and more women are learning to ask their doctors is about the hereditary cancer piece. And um, this is something I know very intimately as someone who's BRCA positive, which is a hereditary cancer gene. For those that don't know who are listening, can you explain what BRCA is? Absolutely. So BRCA1 and BRCA2 are genes that when there's a mutation in one of those genes uh, and you're born with that mutation, it's associated with an increased risk of cancer. And the cancers that are associated are breast cancer, ovarian, prostate cancer, and pancreatic cancer. And these risks can be very high. For breast cancer, the risk of developing breast cancer if you have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation is around 70%. So these are very elevated risks. And knowing that you have a mutation in one of these genes can help you increase your screening using things like breast MRI or even decide on preventative surgery. It's also important to know that there's this association with ovarian cancer risk and those risks can be very high as well. For BRCA1, it's high as 45%. And so you can have your ovaries removed to prevent ovarian cancer. Men are not spared and we'll probably talk about that more later that there are risks to men as well. But when you're newly diagnosed with cancer, as you mentioned, it's really important to ask your doctor, am I at risk to having a, a gene mutation that contributed to my development of cancer? And should I get genetic testing? And that's important because it may make different decisions for your treatment, but it also can really help family members. So if you have a gene mutation, having your sister, your mother, your children tested, can be at children once they're adults, I'm going to, to, to emphasize, can be really helpful in, in their personal management. And then one last thing is that there are 
risk factors. Um, not everyone with breast cancer has the same risk of having a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. So we know that women who have triple negative breast cancer, uh, which is not sensitive to hormonal therapy, we know that women who are younger, who are of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, these are, these are all risk factors for having a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. Having said that, and we'll get into this a little bit more too, I'm sure, is that any, uh, a woman of any race or any ethnicity can have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. There's no race or ethnicity that's spared. And uh, that's a really important thing to realize because uh, many people think of this as something that happens in people of Jewish descent and no one else, and that, that's not true. And it's interesting because when I was going through this process, specifically, you know, there's already a lot of disparities around how different communities receive this information. And, you know, Latinas in particular are more often to be diagnosed with more advanced breast cancers because of a number of reasons, mammography rates and healthcare access and so on. I don't have to tell you, you're the expert. But one thing that I did notice is there was just an, an absence of information that was, whether it was Spanish language or targeted specific communities of color. And, you know, I, I'm thrilled to have partnered with the Basser Center to have co-found Latinx and BRCA, which is targeted towards the Latino community specifically. And I know that there's been efforts on your behalf to do this with different communities. Why is it so important to have a, a cultural angle as well as far as how we get this information out? Alejandra, our partnership with you has been tremendous and quite important. We know that it's not as simple as just translating information into Spanish and thinking that we've solved the problem. Uh, we know that there are different cultural approaches to health and how people communicate with their families um, that need to be sort of embedded in, in this discussion. We know that underrepresented minorities have a much lower rate of getting uh, genetic testing in large part because they are not offered it and it's not discussed with them. Um, and yet um, we know that uh, black women, Latino women can have BRCA1 and 2 mutations and it's just as important uh, for them to know. So we're trying to do this as a multi-pronged approach uh, with again, you Alejandra, awareness is one of the key factors. People uh, don't, don't ask uh, what they don't know about um, and we need to empower women to ask these questions at the same time, uh, we wanted to have information in Spanish, which we do, and that's both on our website, but we've also created materials to send out to community health partners uh, so that in clinics, this information is available um, because you know, we, we want to train professionals as well to recognize um, these risks. Another perceived but not actual barrier is that there is still really a sense that genetic testing is very expensive, uh, but the costs have fallen massively. And most people who actually qualify for genetic testing uh, based on various criteria, their insurance company pretty much completely covers it. And even when they don't, uh, now things cost $250 and there's all sorts mm -hmm. of you know, uh, ways to access that and have those costs covered. So we really want to try to get the cost barrier down. We want to get the language barriers down and we want to get access um, uh, to be uh, less of a problem because we know that these are uh, the problems are, again, uh, there are multiple different um, uh, barriers here. Well, 
when I first tested, it was 2013, and it was thousands of dollars, and it was only a blood test. So it was very different now where, you know, there's a saliva test and it, it can't be covered by insurance. And there was a, also a lot of fear about, you know, what if I go on record here as far as having protections of pre-existing conditions. And again, I mean, this is something we talk about a lot here and about how that knowing with confidence that your protection for folks with pre-existing conditions really clears the way for folks to feel comfortable doing genetic testing, which can save their lives. Right. Well, it's, it's fantastic, you know, that we have the uh, Affordable Care Act and let's all, fingers crossed, hope that it stays that way uh, to protection against pre-existing conditions. Uh, we also have uh, the GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, uh, which uh, has never really been used yet. Uh, and that's in part because uh, the Affordable Care Act came along. Um, and so uh, the GINA prohibits the use of genetic information to be used against you and related to health insurance or you know, job discrimination. It does not protect against long-term care insurance or disability insurance or life insurance. So there are still concerns that, that people have um, and those are sort of broader approaches. Uh, but in terms of health insurance, you know, I think that these days we feel strongly that this is information that can potentially be life-saving and that knowing about it um, is of great value to the individual and to their family member. But I, I really support your comments there. We, we need to keep the Affordable Care Act. We need to keep people uh, with insurance coverage uh, because that's how we can give them preventative care. Uh, we don't want to be real. We want to prevent cancers and not have to treat them. Amen to keeping the Affordable Care Act <laughs> in place and continuing to improve, improve upon it. Uh, you mentioned during the talk about genetic testing, women getting it done. At what age would someone consider something like that? Well, if there is a known BRCA1 or 2 mutation in the family, we generally test women at age 25 because wow. that's when we start breast MRI screening. Um, and uh, we like, although the risk of breast cancer by age 30 is still sort of less than 5%, that's much, much higher uh, than uh, a woman um, in that age group that doesn't have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. Of note, there are other gene mutations um, that we know of now and are available, but BRCA1 and 2 still are those with the highest risks and the ones that we know the most about. We also use, some women use this information uh, in their decisions about having children. Uh, so women can go through, for instance, women and men uh, can undergo in vitro fertilization and then screen the embryos for the BRCA mutation and only reimplant the embryos that don't have the, the, uh, the gene mutation that's known. Wow. And as you can imagine, this is very personal and some uh, couples wish to proceed with this and others do not, uh, but it is technology that's available. Uh, for individuals as well. That's that's great to hear. I didn't even know that something like that existed. A couple of years ago, one of our dear friend, um, Amanda, her mom was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. Can you talk a little bit about that? And my understanding is that it kind of disproportionately affects communities of color in the same way that Alejandra was speaking about earlier. That's exactly right. Triple negative breast cancer is more common in black women. Uh, when we say triple negative breast cancer, we mean tumors that are estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, and HER2 new negative. And the simple way to think about that is that they don't respond to hormones and they don't respond to certain antibody therapies that we have. So the backbone of how we treat them is chemotherapy. 
of the different types of breast cancer, triple negative breast cancers currently have the worst prognosis. And so we continue to look for targeted therapies. The first therapy, in fact, uh, that could treat a subset of triple negative breast cancer patients uh, was a, a medication called a PARP inhibitor, which is used for BRCA1 and 2 related breast cancers. It's why it's very important that women with triple negative breast cancer undergo testing for BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. About 10 to 15% of all triple negative breast cancers have a mutation in either BRCA1 or 2. Wow. Well, we're so grateful that she is cancer-free at this point, but it's so important to know all of that information. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And my mom, when she's um, getting asked all of these different questions about her own history, it's funny, my dad was like, you know, he told me young, never tell anybody your family's medical history, you know, let them guess. And so my poor mother and father are sitting in, you know, the <laughs> doctor's room now and asking, getting all of these questions asked. But my mom had the question asked of her how long she nursed her children and she was very curious whether nursing your children does have an effect that's known when it comes to breast cancer. Yeah, it does. There's so many pieces in, in what you just said. And uh, just really quickly, <laughs> you know, older generations didn't like to talk about their family histories and didn't like to talk about cancer. And we've been trying to break through that barrier because you need to know your family history and you need to talk about it. And, you know, our, our, most uh, favorite example was that uh, a woman said that her great aunt died when her stomach got big because she was kicked by a goat, but it turned out it was ovarian cancer. So it's really oh my goodness. <laughs> wow. Um, and so we just try to emphasize over and over again about how valuable, you know, family history is uh, when we're thinking about this. Now, when we talk about risk factors for breast cancer, we, we often use this term and, and, and hang with me for a minute, it, uh, population attributable risk and then risk to an individual. And what we mean by that is that across a population, risks that aren't very big, but affect the entire population actually have a, a big effect. And so things like obesity actually increases the risk of breast cancer, alcohol increases it. And there are reproductive factors, for instance, having getting your period earlier and your first child late and not breastfeeding all increase your risk for breast cancer. And when you live in the United States, where luckily most of us, not all of us, are pretty well fed as children, that means that we get our period earlier. And because we are educated as women, we tend to have our children later. And we might breastfeed less because we're going back to work. And all these things as a population work against us in, in sort of Western you know, societies, which are very different from countries where you know, kids are getting their periods uh, later and having their children earlier. Those are actually productive against breast cancer. And so breastfeeding is one of these, which is the longer that you uh, breastfeed your children, uh, that is protective against breast cancer. But if you have a specific genetic susceptibility, like we're talking about, even though it's not super common in the population, that increases your risk a lot, no matter what these other factors are. Um, but in general, we, we and this is a, a, an issue for underrepresented minorities as well, working on issues like obesity and exercise are actually really important as well to sort of take care of the whole community in terms of all the risk factors. Wow. And so as we're talking about some of the risk factors and prevention, we are in the month of October talking about, you know, 
awareness. What are some guiding principles as women are encouraged to do monthly breast exams? What are we looking for? And when is the best time? Right. So we've gotten a little bit away from monthly self-breast exams because they don't help as much as we'd like them to. And the word we now use is breast self-awareness, which is a little ridiculous. However, what it refers to is just knowing what your body feels like. Uh, most women who've come in with a lump or bump uh, to be assessed, it's not usually on their monthly exam. It's because their kid hit them in the chest with a baseball. And as they were feeling themselves said, oh, what's that? I don't remember that being there before. So it's more just knowing what your, your baseline is. But it is also a good time to kind of stop and say, well, what are the things I have control over? And those things generally are um, making sure that you're you know, paying attention to any changes in your breast if for the appropriate age of getting your mammograms, thinking about whether your family history makes you a good candidate for genetic testing, but also regular exercise, maintaining a healthy weight, be care- being careful of your alcohol intake. I know COVID isn't a good time to talk about alcohol because <laughs> it's good that we're all- uh, There's a lot of wine. Yeah, we're, we're all using that a little bit more than we used to, but you know, up, up to three drinks a week um, is associated with really no increased risk for breast cancer. But up to uh, when you're at a drink a day, there's a very small increased risk. And then over that, the risk does go up. So uh, largely, I try to tell people it's probably not a good idea to drink every day in terms of breast cancer risks, because nobody in the history of the United States has poured a four ounce glass of wine, which is actually one glass of wine. Uh, so we just all have to be a little bit uh, careful about uh, what we're doing. You know, in terms of diet, um, alcohol is the biggest single component. Uh, but having a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables and healthy grains, you know, a Mediterranean diet has also been shown to be good for your health in general. And I'm so glad you're talking about this, Susan, because this is something that, you know, we think about when there's a diagnosis, but also, you know, when you're just trying to think of what I can proactively do beyond the screening. So let's talk about prevention for a second. You know, when I started learning a lot about this after becoming or finding out I was BRCA positive, I started thinking also in addition to the diet and the lifestyle, the stress levels, the mental health piece of it, the lifestyle piece of it. And I'd love to end on that because we're in this time that is so chaotic and so stressful, and we know that that affects your body. So what are some holistic steps that you would recommend for women to take right now to promote better breast health? Yeah, I think it's different for everyone. What helps uh, your, you know, it doesn't feel good to be stressed. Let's face it. it and it, it inhibits all sorts of things like sleep and you tend to exercise less and drink more. You know, all these things are kind of uh, related to each other. Exercise has really been shown to be quite helpful in almost all areas of health. And so I strongly urge people to exercise. And I say that being, I, I call myself a serial exerciser, like some, I try really hard and then I fall off the wagon and then I get back on the wagon again. Um, and we all just have to kind of, you know, keep working on that. For some women, yoga and meditation is actually extremely helpful. For others, it's sort of journaling and, you know, puzzles. And, and you know, uh, I know th- these adult coloring books, some people really love. And it's just more, you have to take that time to be good to yourself, especially right now. I think we all just need to realize that it's taking a lot of our emotional energy to just you know, deal with everything swirling around us. And we need to be a little bit more careful uh, to spend that at that time, kind of trying to de-stress in whatever way is best for us. A lot of people have gotten dogs during this time. That's the other thing. Dogs and wine, I think are the two. 
Well, Dr. Susan Domchek from the Basser Center for BRCA at Penn Medicine, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a wealth of information. So illuminating. Thank you so much, Susan. I've really enjoyed having you on. Well, thank you for having me. It's a really quite a pleasure. Thank you. Truly, this was awesome. I'm feeling really good about my yoga and not so good about my wine consumption right now. <laughs> Less wine, more walking. <laughs> no, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> Thank you. So I I have to say I am super concerned about my wine consumption after uh, listening to that interview. And I was thinking, oh, dear. (laughs) I don't know that I have ever had a four ounce glass of wine. I'm not going to lie. My mom, when she's going through recovery, she was saying that they said that she couldn't lift anything heavier than a coffee cup. So my my great aunt was like, well, you can fill the coffee cup with wine. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, someone who has been there, she should not be drinking wine in recovery. I've, I'm happy to send her some plant-based food. That was so much information and so many good pieces there that I was really glad and grateful to Susan for coming on and and helping us with that because I think that right now we are kind of in the midst of self-preservation and so many people are kind of allowing their health to take a back seat so I'm glad Mm -hmm. that having breast self-awareness top of mind here was really fantastic. Yeah I think that was the part that really jumped out to me the most, and it was right at the very beginning when she was talking about how mammography rates have plummeted. And I also heard recently a news report that folks were getting diagnosed at, at um, lower levels. And it's just such a great reminder that cancer is not cancel. Cancer does not have COVID. We need to stay on top of our bodies right now. And I'm just really glad for that reminder. Well, I remember when my mom was going in for a mammogram and I had no idea that there was a chance of cancer. And she told me and I was like, why would you go during COVID? You know, like it's dangerous right now. So I'm so glad she did. And I'm so glad that she raised that point. But truly, like it made me want to put on some tennis shoes and go on a run, ladies. (laughs) Well, and if you think of how long COVID is really lasting. I mean, did we think when we all went into quarantine and like, what is it like now March that we'd be sitting here in October, still at these kind of very lower activity levels. And so it's, again, a really important reminder to go for those walks to get out and to exercise because this is could conceivably be a year, a year and a half of our life. And you can't let your health take a backseat to that. So I mean, luckily, I have a a dog for the week. So I'll be out walking (laughs) later on. (laughs) It's true, though. It's like as much as we obsess about, you know, and it is important to talk about having healthcare coverage, all of these steps like going for a run, these are things that are on us, right, to to do. And so it's a good reminder that that is all part of the package, that it's not just on Congress to make sure we don't get sick. So. Yeah, there's so much between screening, but also just this holistic approach. And I know I'm, I loved hearing her talk about the prevention piece, because a lot of times some doctors don't necessarily talk as much about what you can do with diet and lifestyle and so on to try to prevent cancer before it happens. And that's so important as far as having a sense of agency ourselves over what we can control, where we don't just sit there and wait for something to react to. There's a lot we can be doing as women right now. 
You're right. You know, it actually feeds into our POTUS of the week because this is why elections matter. It matters that we elect women to have a voice and stand up for us. And I'm sure we all saw this week, Katie Porter kind of eviscerated uh, some in the drug pricing industry with a whiteboard about the range of a drug price for the same exact drug. And, you know, these are hard questions that our leaders need to be asking so that we can actually take the time to go on a run and take care of ourselves at home. So Katie Porter gets our POTUS of the week this week. Awesome job representing us in California. And so this week, our shout out of the week goes to our dear friend, Lindsay Scola. She has just recently launched Zodiac the Vote, and it's about providing everyday people, activists, and astrology fans with reliable and relatable content that highlights the connection between spiritual integrity, social justice, and civic participation. And she does it in a way that would make Johanna so proud, respect and power, including all the way. So congratulations to her for really bringing to light creative ways to get people active in civic participation and out there voting. Awesome. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as we did taping it. This this one felt really special. And we actually have a a little bonus this week. We're going to tape a a very short bonus pod is a woman episode after the VP debate, because I know that we're going to be not able to wait until next week to share some thoughts. I have a feeling this one will be interesting. So tune in later this week for a special bonus episode. Thanks, everyone. Take care. 